Hey everyone, Colin here from Salt of the Streets. So when I was recording my last blog post, I was in somewhat of a weird headspace and I was struggling to understand a lot of what was happening in the country, in the world, and even what I was trying to do with this blog post. It's been a couple weeks since then and after some off-mic beers with Don, some conversation and a hell of a lot of thinking, I'm feeling like I'm in a much better headspace this time around. That being said, I spoke last time about not knowing exactly what I was doing here with these blog posts. I had gone from a more structural, informational piece to more of an off-the-cuff personal post. And now, after all this time spinning my wheels and trying to see which direction I wanted to go, I've decided to continue on doing with what I've been doing lately, except now I'm doing it more deliberately in a in a consistent direction, we'll say, showcasing my own thoughts and opinions on stories and situations that I feel strongly about. With that preamble out of the way, um, I would like to welcome you to my audio blog, a place that from here on out, I'm going to be referring to as The Birdhouse. It's a place where I, at Big Bird Offie on both Instagram and Twitter, I might add, can invite you in to listen, learn, and share some ideas about those things I am most passionate about. And in this first, but not really first, episode of The Birdhouse, we're going to be talking about a subject I've been enamored and yet strangely frustrated with over the past couple years. Today is Culture War 101. So come on in, make yourself comfortable, and let's have a discussion. But in the meantime... If you want to read this blog post or any of the other blog posts or anything else that we do here at Salt of the Streets, you can always head over to saltofthestreets.com and check all of that stuff up. You can follow us on Instagram at Salt of the Streets. You can like us on Facebook at Salt of the Streets. That's also where we do our weekly live stream pre-show is over there on Facebook. So make sure to look us up. Follow us and turn your notifications on to join the pre-show live on Saturdays. And of course, you can always find myself at Big Bird Offie on Instagram and Twitter. You can find my podcast better half, Donovan, on Twitter. He is at Salt of the Street. And at Instagram, he is at Alpaca underscore Donovan. We drop our main podcast every Monday on your podcast feed and uh, trying to get the pre-shows out on the podcast feed on Sundays. So watch out for those. If you're into the video stuff, you can watch the live pre-show on Saturday on Facebook Live or you can check it out on the YouTubes, the Salt of the Street YouTube page. I We've been trying to drop the pre-shows on Mondays and then the full video episodes of the podcast on either Tuesday or Wednesday. kind of depends how my work week's going. So anyways, I think that's all of our plugs. Make sure to head over to, again to saltofthestreets.com if you want to read these blog posts or get links to everything else that we do here. So without any further ado, welcome back to The Birdhouse. Have you ever heard the phrase, politics is downstream from culture? Or perhaps you've heard it the opposite way, that culture is downstream from politics. When you really stop and think about it, I feel like it really depends on your outlook towards the government and how it intermingles with our society at large. Does our politics govern our culture, or does our culture govern our politics? Maybe it goes both ways. Maybe it ebbs and flows like the tide. 
It is the struggle between who's downstream of whom and whether politics should lead culture or vice versa that I see as the great framework for what makes up what I call the culture war. Now, it's not that I call it the culture war. That's just a term that's been around for as long as I've been paying attention. But it's the ebbing and flowing of societal power and control that I see as the culture war. The entire concept of the culture war is something that's about as subjective as any of the other idea debates playing out in the various battlegrounds of said culture war. Some even see it as a modern-day version of a civil war, and I, I don't think I'd ever go that far, but I could see how some similarities and commonalities when I compared them to some of the social changes and events that led up to our historical civil war, but at the end of the day, I just don't see the events of the early 1860s ever really actually playing out in any recognizable fashion in our modern age. We're just not the same people we're just not the same society that we were even a couple generations ago. Greater still than those in the latter half of the 1800s. No, our culture war is being fought over the concept and the validity of something called intersectionality. And what is intersectionality? The short answer is that intersectionality is a perspective. And more to the point, it's a perspective on so-called social justice. It's a way to view the world and society as a whole based off of certain amounts of characteristics a person has, characteristics such as race, sexual orientation, gender identification, ethnicity, religion, age, occupation, income status, family status, geographic location, immigration status, language, and that's just naming a few. The longer answer is that the entire concept of intersectionality was created by, and if not created, then first pushed as an ideology by a woman by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw back in the 1989. She is touted as the first person to use the word intersectionality, which she used in a paper for the University of Chicago Legal Forum entitled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. Well, in 2016, Crenshaw released a TED Talk in which, over the course of just under 19 minutes, she kind of breaks down where that idea and term came from. While listening to her give this TED Talk, one could be forgiven for being convinced that the idea of intersectionality is a great idea, and she describes the case that she studied before coming up with the term that she coined. In short, back in 1976, a discrimination lawsuit had been brought to a courtroom in which Emma, oh, I'm going to butcher this name, Emma de Griffin Reed, and several other black women sued the General Motors company over the idea that the company, segre- that the company segregated its workforce by race and gender. Men did one set of jobs, women did another set of jobs, but the catch was that the men were all black and the women were all white. This left the the group of women aggrieved, and rightly so, but the case was tossed out by the judge for having no basis in discrimination. Now, don't get me wrong for what I'm about to say here, but the type of segregation taking place in this suit was, 
it was 100% terrible and would in no way be okay in our modern day workforce. But without knowing all the details of the particular case, I would just have to assume that due to the the era, the time, if you will, and the ridiculous racial problems that were still heavily present at the time, the fact that the suit was tossed out seems to me like a kind of a judicial loophole at the time. I mean, the company hired black people and they hired women. How could they be called discriminatory, right? Well, looking at it today, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that they were absolutely sexist and absolutely racist for not hiring these women at the time. But when you take that same thinking and apply it to the modern Western world, I just don't see the same situation ever actually working out like it did back then, whether viewed through the lens of intersectionality or not. I mean, that was just, it was just plain wrong, and it still is today. Either way, this is how Crenshaw came up with this idea of intersectionality. If the judge at the time could have seen their struggle as not just African-Americans and not just women, but as African-American women, then he would have not just tossed out the case so freehandedly. He would have seen that the oppression that the women were being discriminated under was due to the fact that these women were caught between the intersection of gender and race discrimination. Frankly, I just see it as good old-fashioned racism and sexism travesties that were running rampant during this time period. Now, intersectionality, if applied to a, an actual systemic oppressive authority, could possibly have its benefits played out correctly, assuming that the systematic oppression is, is real. But in today's modern age, where the vast majority of discrimination is based on merit and not hatred or systemic oppression— intersectionality simply just doesn't work. In fact, it's totally counterproductive. It's, it's not progressive. It's regressive. The massive problem that intersectionality presents in today's world is unfortunately one of, if not the core principle of the ide ideology, is the fact that the whole ideology is based off of oppression and segregation. Though it isn't stated that way in the TED Talk by Crenshaw, the real-world ramifications of this ideology have proven out time and time again and have shown that this is indeed the case. There are many problems with intersectional thinking, but other than the fact that it forces people into various groups and then judges them based off of how much historic oppression that group has received over a period of time, is the fact that it's simply un-American. And beyond that, it's completely and utterly immoral. The thought that you can group people like all straight white males, these are people who are at the intersection of heterosexuality, white privilege, and male dominance, also known as the patriarchy, examine their historical oppression, which in this case, white people are counted as oppressors and don't rank on the scale of oppression. Heterosexuals is the historical normalized status, again, not oppressed. And male, I mean, did I mention the patriarchy already? I feel like that sums that up enough, to be honest. After all these factors are weighed against every other group of socially marginalized groups that suffer from xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, classism, sexism, racism, heterosexism, ableism, the straight white male is left at the bottom of the oppression scale. On the other hand, a trans woman person of color, 
after running the math, stacks up rather high on the scale and must be propped up to make up for the systemic and historical oppression people like she has suffered over the years. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. This is actually a thing. This is how it works. This type of thinking really exists out there and in a far greater number than we'd like to think. Now, it doesn't always get that crazy. I mean, let's take a much simpler example. The heteronormative, cisgendered, African-American male stands below an African-American woman of the same makeup, but due to the fact that women have historically been oppressed by men. You see how this is, is working out here. Everyone has, every group has a, has a specific set of, of traits that are weighed on a grand scale of oppression, and then those who are more oppressed get higher up in the rankings. Again, there are so many problems with intersectionality, it's impossible to capture all of them right here, right now. But I will note one other major problem that faces intersectionality. Now, this is a problem pointed out by none other than the New York Times back in October, I believe, when they published an article, and this is important to note, this was not an op-ed, but an actual detailed article describing the problem that intersectionalists have facing with the Jewish population of the country. See, they point out that the Jewish population of New York City has been experiencing a massive surge in anti-Semitic hate crimes something that would help skyrocket the Jews higher up on the oppressive hierarchy. But, but they point out a problem. You see, even though the Jews are about the most historically oppressed people in history, they are rather successful these days. And, and there's the fact that they kind of, well, they're white. Now, the article did a very fine job in calling out the fact that there might be a slight problem with the intersectional narrative being pushed if the Jews don't have a place under the intersectional umbrella. But when you take a step back and stop comparing the suffering of the Jews to others, you might be able to see how flat-out racist it is to just start lumping all Jews together and judging them on an oppression scale. I mean, can you see that happening? By, and it's not just the Jews we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about every little intersectional tribe that they, they describe and then rank on the oppression hierarchy. By pulling back and subjugating people by race, by gender, by sex, that is, I feel like, by definition, racist, sexist, homophobe, whatever the problem is, whatever their perceived problem is, they're exacerbating it by pointing it out and calling out how different everyone is from everyone else. The simple fact is, intersectionality is totally and completely wrong. If you cannot view an individual by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin, sexual orientation, immigration status, so on and so forth, then you are wrong. You're just plain wrong. Americans don't believe that type of crap. At least we don't believe it anymore. Yes, we all have ancestral skeletons in our closet. But newsflash, I am not my father. I am not my grandfather or his father. And neither are you. You have free will. You have the freedom of thought and expression. And you live in the freest country during the freest time in human history. 
And it is up to you to realize that and act on it. Do not let the hatred of days gone by affect our present or our future. We're the only ones that can create the future we want. All we have to do is do it. And that is how we are going to win the culture war.